So welcome back to the Current State of Music podcast. This is part two of this time's episode with Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. As I explained in the first one, it was too good to cut down and too much to take out. So I decided to uh, make it into a two-parter. So we've already dealt with collapsed lung and the depression that comes with being a pop star and kind of waiting for something to happen and uh, we left him just after he'd moved to Brighton and he'd picked up a ukulele and played at Fatboy Slim's birthday party and it's at this point we'll rejoin him and I'll see you at the end of the episode so did you have a fa- did you have did you try a few things or did you sort of hit upon this idea early on? I think, yeah, pretty much the whole thing came to be fully formed. I just remember being in the pub. And I think I was, I was trying to find an excuse to dress better. I think I'd, we'd had, with this, the old band, Skank Thing, we had a band called Schooner Boys, which kind of was, we were together throughout the whole of this time from the mid-90s on. And it was, all the stuff was written by um, this other guy, Paul, who was in the band. And it was a sort of dandy punk band, I'd call it. It was, we'd write these sort of slightly modish, punky songs, but um, about sherry and pipe smoking, but sort of, we had, we were almost, this supposed to be almost like a clockwork orange style, ultra-violent gang, but we were all dandies. Yeah. And it was really good, but we didn't, we just used to do record some music and then we'd make a little video in a slightly like small episode of the monkeys we'd do a little silly drama thing and then a song at the end and we did a couple of those and they were really good fun and we didn't actually end up doing a gig until 2007 and then we did one gig in Kingston and I really enjoyed it but everyone else in the band were just going don't want to do that again didn't really like that don't want to do it and I thought, oh, this, but this is what we're supposed to be doing, isn't it? Playing gigs and having fun. And they were all, nah, didn't, didn't really enjoy that. Right. And so that kind of fizzled. After that, that was pretty much the end, the end of that. And so I started. So really, Mr. B was a culmination of all these things. The hip-hop, the production, the ukulele playing and the dandyism. Yeah. And I just threw it all together just to see what happened but it all came to me in the pub when I was probably I'd started trying to think okay I might wear a tie to the pub and then the whole thing came to me I think I remember just saying well, I'm going to do a thing it's called Mr B the Gentleman Rhymer it's going to be called Chap Hop and it's going to be hip hop but dandy and I'm going to play the banjolele and it was all there and it was just a question of doing it you know yeah. that's the thing of doing stuff on your own you can have these ideas for a long time without doing anything but this time I was like oh, I'm actually going to do it so I recorded something put it up on a MySpace page and then someone got in touch and said do you want to come and play at a festival right. and I think I only had one track at the time so I thought right I'd better write some more stuff so I did and yeah played at the festival but it was terrifying because it's the first time I'd been on stage on my own yeah. to perform Yeah, yeah. and it was absolutely terrifying and I was ne- I never really got in bands I was never remotely nervous getting on stage really apart from when we did The Word yeah. You know, and suddenly you've got TV cameras and this big audience of people you don't know. And you've got to try and, you know, wow them. That was absolutely terrifying. But, yeah, this was... Yeah, this was slightly scary. But 
the guy who did sound for me there, he used to do sound for Collapse Lung. And after we'd finished, after I'd finished the show, he came over and said, I'm not being funny or anything, but that's the best thing you've ever done. All right. So, and then, you know, my wife went round flogging little CDs. Yeah, and yeah. they all sold out. And I just had this slight thought that this might actually work. This slightly silly thing that shouldn't make any sense at all. Yeah. May actually work. So what year was that? That was 2007. The okay, summer so of, yeah, 2007. So it's been, yeah. 10, 11 years ago. Exactly, yeah. And then I... Kind of and has it developed over... Has it developed over time then? Um, well, I think if I listen to the early recordings now, my voice is very different. I think in a way, like you, you hear the early sort of tapes of Alan Partridge and hear him now, it's, yeah. he's almost a different character. So it's not... I was very much doing the Noel Coward thing then. Right. It was all like that sort of thing. Very yeah. much like that. And I found after a while, it's hard to play a lot of gigs. Just go because you're slightly constricting your throat. Yeah, it's tricky to do. So I gradually sort of fell slightly into more my normal voice-ish. Although there are, you know, what I call the B degrees, which is my degrees of being Mr. B, where yes. there's on stage Mr. B. And then there's offstage Mr. B, and then there's, you know, Jim down the pub with his mates. But do you think, and this is just coming from sort of an outsider's point of view, do you not think that you're kind of semi-in character most of the time? Yes, the line has now blurred between who I am and who Mr. B is. Because as you'll sit here today, you look the same as you would do on stage. Yes. Well, I think that was part of it. I think early, when I first started doing Mr. B gigs, I had a beard and I would do a gig, which would happen once a month or something like that. And I'd shave the bottom bit of the beard off and just have a slightly rubbish Ian B moustache. And then, you know, that sort of nothing moustache. <laughs> that sums that up. I've got the image of that in my head. Exactly. Completely. When Ian Beale decided to go for the moustache. <laughs> Yeah, and it just looked rubbish. But um, then after a while, I just started getting too many gigs right. to grow the start, grow the, the beard bit back. And then I went for a little spiv moustache for a bit because I thought that'd be nice and simple because you can keep everything quite short then. Yeah. But after a while, once it grew into the, you know, once I started getting the little, the tails, the twirls, everything slightly fell into place. And it was part of it was that, you know, I've always been a huge Prince fan and he, I know, would... He lived... You know, you wouldn't see Prince in a pair of jeans and trainers yeah, and things like that. And it, the same apparently was with his band. He would... You know, it was almost slightly James Brown about the whole thing. If they were seen out in jeans and trainers, they'd get fined or something like that. Yeah. They had to kind of live live the part, as it were. Yeah. And I think I, I wanted to dress like this anyway. Okay. And... I think my yeah, I think Caroline, my wife, just said one day. She said, "You know, you shouldn't really go out in t-shirt and jeans anymore, really, because if Mr. B fans see you, they'll think you're a big fake." <laughs> so I thought, yeah, you're right. I should just dress like this. And I, you know, whenever you put a suit on, you feel quite. You immediately kind of stand up a bit straighter, and that's sort of thing. You, I never wear a suit. So <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Do you have a suit? I do have one, yeah. I hate wearing it. Really? Yeah, I've got some sort of weird thing, I think. 
I oh, really just you prefer the comfort. Well, that said, I've I have got a learned... button allergy. What's that? Not an allergy, a button phobia. Really? Yeah, coonpoonophobia, it's called. So um, really? Yeah, I can't just can't cope with buttons. Okay. An just, actual phobia. Just, yeah, just talking about it's making me. Okay. Having it... small children at school is a daily trial for me getting them dressed. Really? Their shirts on. Yeah, it's awful. Really? Yeah, I'm sort of starting feeling edgy. Just okay, <laughs> we'll move away from those. I'll, I'll, I'll just zip everything up. It's <laughs> all right, they're, they're on you, they're not on me. They're over there. Okay, well, not everybody feels like that then. But no, I found I would feel better in a suit. Obviously, the whole thing's gone mad now because I've got loads of the things and I probably need to calm down on buying suits. But are you now, are you now sort of tied to it, though? Like, when... Like if you want a day off, or, or for instance, if you thought, okay, I'm I'm done with doing the Mr. B thing. Like if you wanted a career move, for instance. Yes. You're sort of tied into it, aren't you? How how have you ever thought well, about that? Well, I guess if I just decided I didn't. I mean, to be honest, I can't really see a point when I'm not going to want to do it. As far as I'm concerned, I will not retire. And the thing is, I think the older I get, hopefully the funnier it will be. Funnier it will become. You know, once the moustache goes grey and I can go a bit sort of, um, um, Count Arthur Strong with the whole thing. Yeah. You know, I could just, I think, the, yeah, almost the older I get, obviously I think everything will start slowing down. I'll, I'll probably start doing more slightly glitchy, slow things because I won't have the energy to, and perhaps I will. The original idea was I was going to do the whole thing from a Chesterfield armchair. Then I realised that it's just too restrictive, and also I'd have to carry a Chesterfield armchair around me everywhere, which would be very annoying. But perhaps I will eventually get there. <laughs> Maybe if I get old and I'm still doing it, I'll do it from the Chesterfield armchair. So, but at the same time, yeah, I suppose I just thought if I decided I didn't want to do it, all I'd have to do is shave the moustache off, and I'm a different person. Yeah. No one would recognise no. me again. This is the thing, I do get recognised a lot because there's something to be said for having a look, as far as that goes. And I'm, you know, fairly recognisable. Well, I think it is quite distinctive. Like, I'd seen you... And we'll go back to this in a minute. I'd seen you on the Scott Mills thing on Radio 1. I think that's probably... Would you say that that was, like, a, a jumping-off point that sort of moved, shifted you up a gear, maybe? Possibly, yes. Although that was... I think, really, maybe it was... I guess it was a similar time when Chat Pop History came out on YouTube and suddenly slightly went viral. Not hugely, but, you know, to the point when in 20, you know, 2009 or whenever it was out, you could go viral. Yeah. But suddenly it was picked up by loads of, you know, taste-making YouTube top tens and yeah. things like that. Um, that, I think, a lot of people... Was, that was their jump off point suddenly I had like a, you know, a million views right. of this video and that was probably just before the, a little while before the Scott Mills thing do you think that was what led you yeah I'd guess so I, yeah I guess they maybe would have seen that but at the same time it was I was at Edinburgh and a, someone I knew was doing had done uh, a guy who was producing co-producing a lot of shows I was on at, at the Edinburgh Fringe what had written Scott Mills the musical for Radio okay, 1 right and so he knew Scott Mills, and they, yeah, it was another slight connections thing. So he said, "Oh, get him in, and we'll do that." So, yeah, I think a lot of people 
definitely heard me on Scott Mills first. There are a few things, either YouTube or Scott Mills, or, I mean, this is part of it, is that the fact it's that slightly old school and new school pincer movement I'm doing as far as, you know, the YouTube hits and, you know, social media and things like that, but also endlessly gigging. So you reach a certain critical mass where's, where a lot of people have either seen you or heard you. Yeah, so how many... How many sadly, it's you, hard work, which is a shame. I can imagine. <laughs> how many gigs are you doing a year on average, do you think? Probably... Yeah, hard to say. It's been slightly quieter at the start of this year, although it's going to be about to pick up again. I find it seems to have been... And I've spoken to lots of people about this. The early first three months of the year right. seem to be really quiet for live things. Right. Generally speaking. And then... It seems to have been, you know, things pick up in the festival season, then after that sort of party season, Christmas, and then it dies off again. Yeah. I mean, I always quite enjoy taking January off anyway. I only did one gig in January. But maybe a year, I don't know, probably 150 shows a year, maybe 100 perhaps. Maybe not that many. It depends. Obviously, when I'm at Edinburgh Fringe, you'll end up doing maybe 100 shows in a month from, you know, little spots here and there and then doing your own show. But, yeah, maybe it's less than that. Up to about 100, perhaps. What, what are these shows? Are they kind of of your own design? Like, do you say, like, right, I'm going on tour? Or do you say, or are you just open to people phoning up and saying, can I book you for whatever this event is? Like, how do you how do you, how do you organise that? Well, I think that's the beauty of it now, is that, whereas previously, this is the real difference between when I started in the mid-90s and now, is that then... You just had to kind of have an agent and a deal. It was all about getting an agent, getting a deal and letting them deal with it because it was this slightly enclosed club that they all knew about that you as a band were outside of and always being held at arm's length. Yeah. Just to the outside of and trying to work out what was going on. And it was controlled by a load of people who themselves didn't really know what was going on. But that was part of it, that there was... There's always a certain air of panic, I think, in the music business that everyone's going to get found out suddenly. And I think, in a way, that has happened with the fact that you don't have to have a deal now. And I actively have spurned deals. You know, people have said, you know, we'd like to sign you to this and to that. And I've always just thought, I don't, I'm not interested. Through my experiences of it, I don't want that to happen now. I've yeah. reached a point when... I can do it all myself and there's no need for other things sometimes it's probably to my own detriment because there's probably people around who would be really good at organising things and I'm not well organised and um, for a while I had a friend who was basically my PA for a, for a bit and she was brilliant at organising things I would say oh I haven't played here for a while I'd quite like to do a little tour in the summer and within like half an hour it was booked <laughs> she'd phone people up I represent Mr B the Gentleman Rhymer he'd like to play a show okay good and we had this whole tour arranged yeah uh, but generally speaking it's just me sitting there waiting for emails to come in and or messages and people are, always there's still always people that want you to play somewhere and the beauty of it and the reason it's worked I think really is because say if somebody wanted a swing band they could ask a swing band to play and if they couldn't do it they'd ask another swing band to play and there's you know endless amounts of bands that play this for music yeah whereas if someone wants a bit of chap hop 
they can either ask me or perhaps Professor Elemental and yeah. that's it yeah, they're not yeah. going to suddenly go alright we'll get another one then because you know there's something about the uniquity of it which helps that's one of the things you know I would say is that if you've got something that no one else does obviously it's difficult to find that and it you know and it's particularly difficult to plan that or to you know try and say right what I'm going to do is find a gap in the market and exploit it what happens is you come up with a silly idea and by some happy accident people decide they like it and creates can, its own market yeah creates its own market and you can make a living out of it which is which is absolutely wonderful what is interesting is how as you just mentioned Professor Elemental is that you both seem to have stumbled upon this idea at a similar time in a similar or in the same town yes what are the chances of that that is really odd but and we really were not aware of each other for perhaps the first year of doing what we were right. doing and at almost exactly the same time there's obviously some sort of being tuned into some kind of zeitgeist I don't know yeah, it's just fascinating. It, it was clearly the world was ready for it. Yeah. Somehow, and we just happened to be two people in the same town who chanced upon a version of the, a similar theme. Was and there was there rivalry? Is there rivalry? Well, this this is kind of the great thing about it is we yeah, I didn't know anything about it. It was Jimmy from the Bobby McGee's who said, "Have you heard Professor Elemental?" when we played a gig together and I'd said no and he said oh, you should check him out so I had a look at the Cup of Brown Joy video yeah, and I thought oh no someone's doing a similar thing and then I saw how many hits it had and thought oh shit this is why I'm in trouble now this guy's had like half a million hits on this video but um and then we met at a Public Enemy gig in Brixton and got chatting there and then we didn't really see each other for maybe a year maybe a year year and a half and then somebody sent me a link to him doing Fighting Trousers Live, which was his diss track to me. And I was straight away, what's this? And then he did the actual video. But he emailed me, to his credit, he emailed me before. He said, look, I just want you to know, I'm doing this video dissing you. I thought it would only be fair for me to te- let you know first that it's happening. Yeah. And uh, the great thing about it was, I mean, we met up after that, and he just said to me, I think we sat down in the pub, and as we sat down, I said, well, first off, I didn't rip you off. And he went, I know that. He just said, he just said he'd always wanted to do a diss track. And I was the first person to come along that would be relevant for him to do that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there was a certain amount. I know they had a lot of, you know, people in his ear going, what about this Mr. B? Or people thinking he was me and saying, oh, I like your song about Surrey or I like yeah, your yeah. chap-hop history. And I think that probably, <laughs> probably irked him a bit. The thing was, it being, you know, suddenly being a social media thing, there was some interesting opposite, you know, benefits and and not benefits about it, pros and cons. Cons being suddenly you realise you're in this social media storm in a way, and people took it, some people took it very seriously. And I had people like leaving messages saying, you've taken food out of his kids' mouths and things like that and say, you absolute bastard. You're like, hang about. And sometimes I made, you know, I learned early not to engage. Yeah. I did engage for a short while and it didn't really get anywhere. And some people got really upset about the whole thing. 
But the beauty of it was, it did neither of us any harm because suddenly, rather than there being, you know, one, there being this thing called chap hop that was odd enough and unique enough in its own way, two, there were two people doing it, and three, they were having a beef. So suddenly there was a story. Yeah. And the great thing, you know, that's the thing about, you realise with sort of music and journalism particularly, is that it's all very, very well and good saying, you know, he does, he raps in a posh accent about cricket and pipe smoking. Um, there's a whole other one saying there's two of them and they're having a beef and it's gone viral on the internet and, you know, they're going to battle, are they going to battle? That, all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Was, was just great fun and did neither of us any harm. Yeah, I bet. Anyway, we were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> really? Yeah. Obviously, it's a broadsheet, <laughs> and it was right in the bottom corner. And sadly, the bit on the front of it was a picture of him. Inside, there's a bigger story that had a big picture of me. But, yeah, it was, it was, it was just this woman who was a, a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, and she was really into the whole thing and interviewed us both. Yeah. And they did this whole thing in the Wall Street Journal about it. So suddenly there were all these odd things that would start happening and people got to know who both of us were yeah which was great and now we're, we're you know we're, we're really good friends now we catch up every now and again I just recently did three days work doing workshops in a school yeah. which a friend of mine who works at this school somehow managed to trick me into doing and I'd never done anything like that before really you know going into schools and it was utterly terrifying whereas Paul the prof had he used to work in schools so you know, he sent me loads of really good ideas of things to to do, which you know, which I'm very grateful for. And I think he does. You know, we all sit and talk about music, talk about because we we're two people who are doing a similar job. Yeah. And there's a, you know there's a, a unique little friendship that you that builds out of that. The fact that nobody else really understands what you're doing necessarily. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's really good. We often have chats, and you know. He's sort of been very nice and said that, you know, I. as it turned out, he was at one of my first collapsed lung gigs. Right. Which was funny and recently said, he goes, I found it quite inspiring. And he'd never actually said that before. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, you kept that one quiet. He said he was, yeah, he was at Hull University, I think. And collapsed lung played there supporting Credit to the Nation. Yeah, yeah. And he said he saw, he saw me on stage and thought, ah, oh, I could do that then. That's the sort of thing I could do. So another weird little cyclical thing that comes around and suddenly like oh here we are so you've just mentioned um, credit to the nation and collapsed lung oh, yes. that's something else that seems to be happening it is yes yes absolutely I mean the one thing I'll, I'll get just going back to the prof for a minute the one thing that also we do have though is even though we are you know we're really good friends now and all of that we still very much have an eye on each other I think, uh, you know, speaking for myself, I think Paul's said the same thing, that he, I, you know, he clearly he will look at what I'm doing and I'll look at what he's doing. And, you know, I'll occasionally get a message going, I can't believe you did such and such, like, you know, Romesh's podcast or something like that. I can't believe, I'm not at all jealous whatsoever. And I just want you to know that I'm not jealous that you've done it. <laughs> and, yeah, we both look at what we're doing and we'll see if one or the other's doing an exciting thing. Say, he's got a new album coming out soon. Yeah. And I'm immediately like... Right, if he's got a new album out, I need to get cracking yeah, and stop yeah. fart-arsing about and actually do, you know, get to the studio and pull the album together. Because I'm always recording, that's the thing, I'm always recording, but it's usually recording music, and it's, again, it's lyrics that are the things that usually come last. Yeah. And the things I keep, always carry around a notebook 
thinking, if I sit down, I've got to write some lyrics, and then you'll sit down and get on your phone or something like that. So it's good, but it's one of those good sort of, you know, Lennon McCartney, Jagger Richards things, I think, that you're you up your game because there's someone out there doing a similar thing. Yeah. And I wouldn't call it a rivalry, but we've certainly, we have an eye on each other and it's very healthy for, I think if it wasn't for the prof, I probably, I may well have faded away and just thought, ah, I can't be bothered. But because we're both out there doing it, we still, you know, we've got a little eye on each other, which is good. And it's a nice thing. Well, I've seen you do shows together and I think that, it's it's a it's a nice thing to see that although obviously you will play off each other a bit, you are willing, you know, you sort of support each other in a way. It's, although it's like a rivalry, but a support structure yeah, as well, isn't it's it? A very, it's a kind of a a, un, a very unique thing that, and it's nice to see that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's fun to see it on stage as well. Like exactly, because we're still, you know, we still slightly keep up the the whole premise that we're rivals and we're, you know, we kind of officially hate each other. So it's, you know, we still like, have a dig at each other every now and again. Um, and on, you know, social media, we're always, you know, we'll take the mickey out of each other. And yeah. That's, and yeah, we'll do that. But, uh, yeah, it, it helps. Obviously, people still want us, you know, if people book us together, they go, can you do the battle? And we're like, we don't do that anymore. But right. we'll do a couple of tracks together at the end or, you know, do some kind of, you know, I'll interrupt one of his songs or interrupt one of mine, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. We keep planning on doing things together, and I think we may well do. But at the same time, there's part of it that you think we do need to differentiate ourselves from each other as well. Yeah. It's all very nice being considered to be part of this little mini-movement that we both created. But at the same time, we are very different. We do things in a different way. Yeah. We sound different, you know... With me, I do, you know, he's he's very much a rapper who has a producer and things like that. And I'm, you know, I do everything myself, so it's a bit more about me doing music as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah, we're, we're similar, but different. It's like that sort of thing, you know, if people listen to house music, that don't, you know, that people that don't know it will listen to house music and think it all sounds the same. Yeah. Whereas if you, you know, if you're into it, it doesn't. Yeah, you can spot the difference. Yeah, yeah. So we say yes, collapse lung, credit to the nation, and things like that. Well, I I mentioned this because I didn't know that you were in collapse lung. Okay. And then I think I saw your post about it online, and it was a bit of like, let's get behind this. Like, what's what's the story there? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. and, and I wondered where that was coming from, and then I later found out that you you were in it. Right. And is it just? Is it? Is it just on the nostalgia tip, or where's it going? Like, what's what's the story with that? Well, it was we got back together in from it was actually my wife put on a surprise 40th birthday party for me, right? And in London, and when I turned up, there was a little stage there, and my brother. It was actually you know my brother that announced it to me. Uh, he came up and said, "Oh, that's you know," he said oh this isn't the only surprise you're going to do a gig so I thought okay someone must have brought my banjolele along and I'll do a little Mr B gig that's fine and they went no 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 Collapse Lung are doing a gig and we'd never ever we were we were yeah we'd never ever planned to get back together we're still we're still really good friends we probably hadn't seen each other for a while you know we catch up every now and again yeah 
but we were never ever it just wasn't what we were going to do at all and I didn't really believe it when you first said that was going to happen I said well yeah right okay and then the rest of the band the band suddenly were surrounding me all kind of with little knowing grins I thought oh god this is actually going to happen I think she'd check with them to make sure I wouldn't totally freak out or something like that Um, and yeah so we did this little gig at my 40th birthday party and it was great it was really good fun and you suddenly remembered all the fun stuff which you tend to and so we did another gig got a drummer in did another gig in Harlow at the square where you know which was the sort of heart of the band which is very sadly now gone and been bulldozed for some luxury flats that are no doubt never going to actually end up being put up I don't know yeah which is the way of a lot of venues. But, yeah, we did another one there. Then we didn't do anything for a couple of years. And then I think Ant started sending some beats over to me and said, why don't we, you know, do some new stuff? And so it was it was never part of the, you know, the whole... The nostalgia trip thing is a bit of a side... A sideshow to the whole thing, really. Right, because. Okay. We just wanted to do some new stuff. And then the thing with it as well, I don't think we're necessarily too much on the nostalgia carousel because nobody really gave a shit about us in the first place. (laughs) I think that's the thing. I did test, and when we started doing gigs again with new material, I remember we were at the 100 Club and I said, oh, this is from our first album. And then we played a new song. And then at the end of it, I said, anyone notice? No, nobody noticed it was actually a new track. So that was the beauty of what we've got now, is that we weren't, we were never that popular. We had Eat My Goal. Yeah. But most of the people that maybe bought Eat My Goal aren't going to go and see that band again 20 years later because they're just the sort of people that buy records because they're in the charts. So, you know, the hardcore of fans may have, a lot of them decided, when we did Eat My Goal, they're a bunch of sellouts, we're not going to follow them anymore. So we had almost a double whammy of people who bought the record. There weren't that many of them anyway. They're not going to be that bothered. And a lot of the people that were with us at the very start may have thought, I'm not following them. They've done an advert. Yeah. So in a way, we're in quite a nice position where we can just do our own thing. So it's kind of like a new band. To the extent which, you know, we are really scratching around trying to find gigs. And when we play gigs, sometimes there's like 20 people there. But they're often all old fans, and they really love it. And we did a gig a while back in Bedford with it was us on first, then Credit to the Nation, who have come back again now, and Censor as well. Yeah. So it was like, you know, the old gang back together. It was really good fun. But I think we, you know, I, that gig, I think we smashed it. Yeah. We were, we're really good live. This is the thing. We sound better because it's easier to sound better now. And also, I think as a band we've definitely got it's almost like I say like starting a new band so I feel more confident in where we're going and what we're going to not necessarily sound like but what the lyrical content's going to be and things that sort of thing and we've all got out you know Ant does the beats now it was previously there would, you know, Ant would do most of them but Steve would do some I'd do little bits like he, he deals with the beats I deal with the content of you know culturally in a way what we're doing and then Johnny and Steve will get together with the beats and what I've got and they'll jam some stuff out and work out the bass lines and the, the guitar and, and um, yeah and it's just been really fun we've got we've, 
We've basically got a new album coming out this year called Zero Hours Band. And I think it's sounding really good. A lot of people, when we're playing live, a lot of people saying the new stuff's the best stuff. Maybe all bands that would talk about this sort of thing would say that, but they seem to be going down really, really well live. And I think just because we've brought together a bit more experience, but I'm still very conscious of not going soft. In a way, just not being, you know, we're a bunch of old men. But at the same time, you know, you can't just jump around and shout your head off for an hour anymore. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not physically a good thing to do. How do you balance being Mr. B then and then being in Collapse Lung? Like, is it just Mr. B on stage with Collapse Lung? Or like, how does, how does that look? How does that work? Uh, well, I've managed to slightly sidestep the issue of dress by we have band uniform. Right. <laughs> so when people say why are you wearing like a sweatshirt it's a band uniform sorry it's, it's policy I just you know it's just the rules I have to wear this so um, yeah we just have we've got the new the Collapse Lung logo which is based on the old Grandmaster Flash logo so it's got Collapse Lung in that I can't remember what the font's called but it's the one that everyone used to have all the old b-boys used to have like Rocksteady crew would have yeah, their yeah, sweatshirts yeah. pressed in these slightly gothic but not Almost a cross between Cooper Black and a Gothic font. So with my graphic design thing coming out there, um, that with the two flashes down the middle, and so we sell those T-shirts and say "Collapse Long" on it. But we wear a T-shirt, and I've got some sweatshirts done as well because I felt like I wanted to wear a sweatshirt. Just you know, something about T-shirts were just a step too far. <laughs> <laughs> so we've just Do got you want the to two. show your arms off. How can I show my arms off? No, I'm Mr. B. I don't show my arms off. But uh, so they've just got the two blue flashes on them. Um, whether that will carry on, I mean, it may well get to the point when I'll just dress like Mr. B, but I'll be Jim Lung, or as I was known in my um, my solo stuff that I used to occasionally record, Filthy NC. So yeah, which is a bit of a stretch from Mr. B to being Filthy NC. It was actually NC for North Cheam rather than MC. Just me being, you know, awkward again. But yeah, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's it's at the moment we may have to maybe put the album out and then try and get some gigs off the back of that because at the moment it's it's not that easy getting gigs at the moment. We did one at the Prince Albert in Brighton last year. That was great, and then we did the one in Bedford after that, and it was the best weekend of gigs we'd had for years. And it was we really, you know, we we're really on top form. But it's you know, it's kind of handy that there is a slight little nostalgia circus going on for the 90s so we yeah. can you know we played with Jesus Jones and we did one with EMF and obviously credit to Nation Sensor we did one with Ned's Atomic Dustbin wow so we're becoming kind of like a little bit of a go-to support band for the nostalgia tours yeah which is fine because it means you get a bigger crowd you might sell some t-shirts the first one we did with Jesus Jones I was quite pleased that we actually outsold Jesus Jones on t-shirts so that was a little victory for us surely everyone that's ever wanted a Jesus Jones t-shirt has probably already got one possibly but they do have a lot of new t-shirts a lot of t-shirts I guess we just have one t-shirt but it's very tasteful our yeah. one okay so given your history and everything you've done up until today and are doing how do you feel about the current state of music, of music and the music industry what's your how do you see it from your well I'm slightly at a point when I feel like, in a way, I'm in a similar position to the music business. Although the music business seems to have slightly caught up and is 
you know, making a lot of money out of Spotify and out streaming now. Whereas previously they panicked about it and didn't know what to do. They seem to have slightly got their tendrils over the whole thing again now. But I'm slightly in that position where I, I'm really slightly new to Spotify. And I've been had my stuff on there for a few years, but I've never been involved, you know, never downloaded the app or anything like that and wasn't that interested. Whereas now I'm suddenly thinking, okay, it seems I've got to get on this. Um, and also the gradual decline of physical sales is that's kind of the model I've worked within for the last 10 years or so has been you know make an album put it on a CD play gigs sell them at gigs and they do sell at gigs still I think just people just want a little souvenir and then I think okay well maybe I'll just do some vinyl EP the plan is to do a series of vinyl EPs this year but at the same time you're not can't ever be sure how many you're going to sell of that because it's still quite niche really so you know you could end up just you know pressing a load of vinyl and then realising that actually contrary to what lots of people in the business seem to be saying it's, oh, it's all about vinyl forget CDs although someone said to me recently the only people that think they don't sell CDs anymore are the people that don't sell CDs you know who don't you know, put them out there to sell because I still flog a load at gigs but a part of me thinks I've got a lot of albums out now and whereas you know after the first album I sold my whole consignment of like a thousand CDs fairly quickly now I'm suddenly realising there's a gradual build up of boxes in my studio of unsold CDs that I need to take out of there and get rid of or do a sale or something like that because just because of the sheer volume of music I've put out you know there's about what would it something like eight albums now simply there's there's going to be a volume of boxes of CDs so ideally it'd be quite nice to get rid of those but yeah so it's it's yeah the whole you know Spotify playlists realising that that's the new radio playlist really is the Spotify you know you've got to get yourself on the big Spotify playlists are you able to do I don't know actually to be honest that's the thing I'm really slightly in the dark with it I'm learning about it as I go along which is not very much because I you know I guess part of me really I'm effectively a quite a bone idle bugger so I don't yeah I don't take too kindly to thinking that I have to suddenly learn lots of new tricks so yeah we'll see and there's every possibility I mean I still really want to look at the stats I, you know I've had millions of plays on Spotify which is you suddenly look at the figures and go what how did that happen then you realise you know people are doing this all the time all over the world and so you do get a lot of plays don't get much money for it but yeah you, you do get played do you think is that are those streaming services replacing physical sales or they're still yeah I'm still hanging on in there with that really I'm still selling a fair amount of physical particularly at gigs I mean online I'm selling less CDs although things I seem to have now realised um 
as uh, John from Modern Toss recently told me, said, paper, that's what it's all about. Sell things on paper, because people still like that as gifts. And I recently, just before Christmas, I put out the Chap Hop songbook, yes. which is a nice little, uh, a proper book, it's about 140-odd pages, that I've illustrated as well. Yeah. So I finally used that again. And it's just my lyrics and some chords. Not necessarily ukulele chords, it's just the names of the chords of the songs. And that's kind of the, my biggest seller at the moment. Because it's... You don't have to have anything to play it on. That's the thing with CDs. It's only people, you know, the people that seem to be by it all say, I'll play it in the car. Because that's where people have CD players now. Because there aren't any anywhere else. People don't often have a CD player in their house now. They'll have a little hub and play everything off their phone. But I'm still, you know, I do still sell things, but I'm very conscious there is the, the nagging little feeling in the back of your mind that, okay, where do we go now? What's has to happen? And the whole thing about releasing an album is, yeah, it's an odd one. You're going to think, is it worth putting an album out now? I, mean, I love the album. I love, you know, albums as a listening experience are, are great things, and I don't want them to ever die out because if you make music, that's you don't want to just do, you know, three-minute pop songs are great. Mine are often two minutes. Brevity being the soul of wit, of course. And just the fact that I, can't, I can usually just not be bothered to write a third verse. There you go. And it's, you know, as if I'm doing slightly amusing songs, the gag turns up a certain way in, and there's only so much you can do with that. You just play with that. So there's no point doing a 10-minute, you know, opus about you know I don't know smoking a pipe and looking at porn or something like that not that you know, that's what you do some people <laughs> yeah, about to do that. well I've got my more kissing in porn please we're British which is always a popular one <laughs> this is the thing people just, you know this thing as well is you can try and be as whimsical as possible and clever and you know old school wordy but you know if you're rude people love it which is slightly a, a sad state of affairs. But I do find that. Sometimes if I'm doing a gig, I occasionally do like gigs that say, I did one in January at the fifth, and a, a fifth birthday party of, a, of a, uh, Mr. Fogg's a bar in London, sort yeah. of Victorian, Phileas Fogg-themed yeah, place. Yeah. And it was you know, lots of people from the drinks industry there, and it was just a bit of a jolly for them. And you know, these sort of things you play, you're kind of background music, really. So what I tend to do at those often is I'll just play the rudest songs I can possibly imagine, and you just suddenly see people going what at the bar who have been chatting to each other, slightly paying attention by going what did he just say? Did, did he, is he just talking about crap? What, that sort of thing, which is quite nice to to see. You know, it's always a way of getting you know of enjoying yourself at things like that. Corporate dues, which I you know tend to not do many of because they tend to be slightly soul destroying. But yeah, that's your way of being slightly subversive about the whole thing. I'll play at a, you know, yeah, at some big corporate thing and then just sing, just endlessly sing songs about porn and crack. <laughs> Why not? 
Would you... Did you start off thinking, I want to make this music and your gigs were a way of... Like you made the music and then people wanted to see that live. And has it turned now that making making an album of songs is just generating content for your shows because they're now the driver? Yeah, that's pretty much true. Yeah, originally it was, I just wanted to make some quirky music, make some something different, something interesting. And then, yeah, really, I mean, that's it. My income is 90% from gigs. You know, some of it's from merchandise, some of it's from sales, um, you know, online sales and downloads and streaming. But 90% of it, I'd say, is from doing gigs and getting paid to do gigs. And, well, that's great because, it, you know, it keeps things interesting. And it also hones hones the art like nothing else, just endlessly playing and realising what does work, what doesn't work, what th- you know, and the, and the fact that sometimes things will work somewhere and things will not work somewhere else. But when you're writing songs, are you thinking, always thinking, this is a live track, this is, these are for shows, or, or do you write songs because they're the songs that need to come out of your head? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do, yeah, absolutely. There's a bit of both. I think I'm, I keep, I think largely I will just write songs because I want to write them and they're in there and they just come out in whichever form they do. And I keep trying to remind myself, because I realise there's maybe a couple of my albums that I hardly play anything from live, because at that point I wasn't writing thing, you know, it just so happened. It wasn't necessarily a conscious thing, but by accident, they just didn't, people liked listening to them, but they didn't necessarily go down as well live, or didn't get any laughs, or just didn't quite hit it live. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, this year, my plan this year, I mean, I always say my plan this year, and then suddenly realise we're in April next week. <laughs> you know, this is the way, you know, I'm actually slowing down my way of working. What I need to do is, oh, someone said to me recently, who was a real perfectionist, she said she had a real revelation that, she said, try and just do stuff that's a bit rubbish. Don't worry about it being rubbish. Just knock stuff out, and, and you'll find that that's probably the best stuff you'll do. Yeah, and in a way, I've kind of the fact that I've had, have had eight albums out. You do find you you're thinking constantly. I need to do something that's slightly different. So eventually, you, but you don't want to. You know, that will tempt you to eventually go too far away from the idea that's at the heart of the success of it all. So it's a tricky little balancing act. So my plan, as I said this year, was I was to do three vinyl and download. EPs, one very sort of hip hop, very much the things the sort of thing I play on the One BTN show, the sort of yeah. wonky, LA beats, weird, overly side chain compressed hip hop, but in a very much a chat pop way. With I mean, that's a beautiful. It's just a using mucking around with old samples, which is always what I've one of the main things I've loved about hip hop was uh, using samples as kind of a cultural signpost. Yeah. to say this is what this is about really you can use the samples without having use, to use any words to just say this is what I'm doing yeah. this is what this is like the stuff I do under the name of The Major which is sort of instrumental electronic hip hop but with a sort of slightly chappist bent to it 
so I'll sample you know I'll, I'll get I've found got an old interview with PG Woodhouse right and chopped it up to make it into a rap so he was kind of rapping along with this this beat and that's really that's that's sort of the stuff I kind of like doing most is that you know, almost the production end of it or just coming up with weird tunes so, so that allows you to kind of compartmentalise Mr B as in this is something I do and that's yeah that's kind of like my income exactly not in such a black and white sense but that's that's the thing that has generated some success yeah and then here's another project where I get to do the avant-garde stuff so I'm not diluting the Mr B thing no exactly yeah that's the thing I've always you know I've always liked to have different personas for different things but at the same time I think now I'm realising it's probably a good idea for me to admit that some of these other things I'm doing are by Mr B are me like the major, I was always said the major is a chappist electronic hip hop act signed to the chap hop business concern, and I never mentioned it's me. Whereas I should really say this is Mr. B the Gentleman Rhymer doing something different, because obviously Mr. B the Gentleman Rhymer has a following. Yeah. Whereas the major or Jason Rollbars, my house side project, doesn't. <laughs> and you go, realize there's all these different things. I may resurrect Sergeant Rock soon, I think as well, because that was always really good fun to do. The only thing reason I'm not doing it is not, I'm not, you know I kind of there was some stuff with the old label that maybe it was slightly unresolved that I should probably not declare myself as Sergeant Rock because I'm going wait a minute but um, yeah so there's yeah I realise that you, it's, it's not that easy to just go oh here's some kind of wonky house music I'm doing and expect suddenly loads of people to download it because for one the tr- tricky thing with it as well is that I put uh, one of the major tracks on the Mr. B YouTube uh, channel and suddenly those people are going, you know, lots of people who like Mr. B maybe like rock music or like, you know, you can't, yeah. you know, they like what you're doing maybe because it's musical and there's instruments where suddenly you do some weird, wonky electronic hip hop thing with no words on it. Yeah. And people can kind of go, what's this? No, 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 I don't like this. No, don't. And they assume this is yeah. what, you're, what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they think, oh, I'm not going to listen to him anymore because he's doing this now. It's, it's a real weird little balancing act you have to you have to perform. Do you find that having all these different roles within your kind of, you know, your enterprise... Yes. Does that take away from the bits that you want to do? Do you find getting bogged down in like the admin and the industry and the work aspect of sort of your craft? Um, to be honest with you, I don't. <laughs> what I should do is actually get more involved in the admin and the industry, <laughs> whereas I just tend to, to do my own thing and hope for the best. So, you know, most of the time I'm just making music really and going and performing it. I mean, there's certain things I'd like to do like take the major out live you know suits pretend live or just you know do more DJ gigs as, as the major yeah um, or you know I've got a little kind of pretend live setup I can do with a few little gadgets that would make some noise that would make the major quite interesting but it's a question of finding the time to do that amongst always thinking right I need to do the next Mr B thing yeah or you know, I'm writing a Mr. B novel at the moment as well. Okay. A sort of novella. Let's not go. Let's not go mad. No one wants to read too much of it. But uh, so that's kind of interesting. Just doing more writing. I've been writing for the Chap magazine, doing the Mr. B's Chap Hop diaries in there. Okay. So there's a bit more 
it's quite nice because after you know after a while you can find your cans or diversify what you're doing yeah. as long as you just make sure that the uh, the cash cow as it were not that there's a lot of cash but it's the cow is there just to make sure that's ticking along yeah so I say the plan was to be to do three the sort of hip hop EP one which is uh, which I'm playing sort of all live instruments on and it's more just sort of cabaret funny cabaret songs but obviously in a chat pop style as well and one which is going to be a bit left field which is called Spam Ballads which is a kind of psychedelic ballads EP largely about spam emails and yeah the internet perhaps so yeah we'll see how that all goes so I've got bits of all these things together already it's a question of I need to consolidate it all now put it all together and see what happens okay um what do you see happening in the future not as as well as just as well as for you as for the sort of wider music thing how how do you what do you see I don't know I mean at the moment it seems that the industry you know the, the traditional music industry is getting its talons back into everything again whereas I think we went through the period of you know probably you know the zeitgeist moment of of the start of this sort of internet revolution was probably the Arctic Monkeys and their MySpace page and suddenly they became huge through that yeah but then they become immediately engulfed in the industry itself and become you know what they were maybe fighting against yeah um I mean, the thing is, it's, the great thing is, so long as, you know, the internet's there, as long as it doesn't suddenly get shut down by, by someone, um, it, you, everyone can now put music out and anyone, everyone in the world can hear it if they decide to. It's just a question of, you know, we'll see what happens with net neutrality, which yeah. is a real scary thing, but suddenly that would mean that you know the big boys will all really have a grip on everything then and if you want to listen to music you could you know i don't really know how it'll all work but you know everything all the corporate high you know top corporate things you can get really easily and all the sort of stuff that people like me and people i know would do would suddenly become slightly more difficult to get hold of yeah so that's you know that's a danger that they're really going to get a huge grip on it do you think you're do you think you owe your career at least in part to sort of technology and the way things have opened up and it's allowed you to do what you want to do without having the structures that you may have previously had to sign up to? Yeah, definitely. It's yeah, it's I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for technology and for the internet and for social media because I would have had to try, you know, 20 years ago I would have had to try and get probably a major record deal or you know at least a decent indie deal yeah because that's what you do if you're going to get anywhere unless you're just going to be a little pub band that maybe is just going to play down the local every week for 50 quid yeah you need to get you would have needed to get signed yeah. to whoever it was and there was a real yeah that's that was a real feeling around it you couldn't just do stuff on your own you could maybe try and start a label but then you'd need backers were you when you started doing Mr. B? Were you aware mm. of being able to do it yourself and the doors that were now open due to all that technology? Yeah, I think I was just. It was just at the point when that was happening. I mean, the whole thing was a happy accident. It was never 
there was never a grand plan. I just seemed to have, maybe I just, I don't know, had an, a certain ear for what people might want to hear at certain points because I seem to have throughout my whole what you might call a career, um, something will have turned up at just the point when I was running out of money from the previous little musical escapade, <laughs> something would turn up to just about save me. Like, you know, after the collapsed lung and after Junior Blanks, that Sergeant Rock came along. And then when that fizzled out and I stopped, you know, people stopped using. Ironically, when people stopped using kind of big beat type things, that's when the whole slightly horrible now ukuleles in adverts thing started. Whereas previously, I guess it was an era in the late 90s when everyone was sort of having to make a big noise and all the adverts were like, yeah, were quite bombastic. Yeah. Then there came an era in the early 2000s when I guess companies were starting to think, well, we have to appear more friendly yeah. because everyone hates us. So we have to appear friendly. So the ukulele is like the friendliest instrument you could possibly have. Yeah. Sadly, I didn't jump on that, that particular, even though I started playing ukulele just before that. Uh, yeah, I never really got involved in that. Although... I was, uh, I've been asked to do a couple of adverts as Mr. B. Right. But they kind of wanted Mr. B in it. Whereas with the Sergeant Rock stuff, I could just say, here's some music. Nobody really knows who it is. It's just some music in an advert. Yeah. And I could just give it to them and leave it at that. Whereas there was like a Yorkshire Tea, I think, asked me to do an ad. And they wanted Mr. B to be in it. And for one, they weren't offering nearly enough money. And so it would have been, that would have been a disaster because I would have suddenly been the Yorkshire tea man. And I don't think at my level there's any coming back from something like that. Yeah. You're just, that's it, you're done. And then you just have to stop doing what you're doing and try something else. So, yeah, I seem to have been lucky in that front. But it was still, you know, as it stands, the thing is, you know, if you're doing something that people want to hear or like, and there's no way of planning that, then there's the means for you, for everybody in the world to hear it. Yeah. Or not everybody, but lots of people yeah. to hear it. So it's, you know, that can't be anything but a good thing, really. It's just you have to, we have to be very vigilant about people who try and take certain rights away from us. Yes. Which, you know, that's the thing with the music business largely being like, you know, in the 60s, it was obviously run by people who knew about money, but it was run by people who maybe thought, oh, let's give this a listen. This might be interesting. The kids might like this. Whereas now it's much more, you know, cynical and it's run by, you know, it's run by hedge fund, hedge funds and yeah. things like that. It's, you know, they're the people who own the music companies. So the whole thing, it's just about the bottom line. Yeah. Which is why so much, you know, I don't think it's just me being an old fart, but it does sound like pretty much most of what you'll hear in the charts could be by any of the artists who are in the charts yeah, so an Ed Sheeran track could well be a Rihanna track and they do obviously you know certain tracks that someone's put out have originally been written for someone else Yeah, and they're pretty much interchangeable Yeah. so and I do think that's not me being an old fart with any luck being that oh it's new music rubbish because I do you know still like new music but it's just that you know that sort of end of pop music it's always been a bit rubbish but you know even bands like Duran Duran everyone thought they were you know cheesy but they were a band they could play write songs and they were interesting to look at and yeah. Yeah, they had they had it all going on they certainly did um, 
Have you got any advice for anybody aspiring to either enter the music industry or make music and maybe make a career out of it? Well, I would say because of the democratic nature, I think, of, you know, the way things are, it can be, of the internet, you just have to kind of, what you're doing has to be unique, really, or very, very good. There's things, obviously, that come through recently, there's a couple of bands like Noah and Lewis Cole and people like Wolfpeck, who seem to have come through because people watch their videos and they are just incredible young musicians just really good at what they do and kind of funky and what have you and usually with like Lewis Cole it's just sort of really funny as well that's a really good thing about him it's just and, they, and there's a definite sort of social media savvy about a lot of what they do a lot of it's very filmed in a very low tech way because yeah. you can just film that's kind of a really good kind of punk thing about it you can film a video now on your iPhone which will probably get as many you know as many hits as something that's been lit beautifully because you know I found that I was talking to um, Paul Hartnell from Orbital and he was saying that you know they, he'd done a lot of videos that were you know had famous people in them and were really well lit and great things and then he put a video up a year or so ago just him in his studio jamming just switched the phone on in one position jamming out this you know crazy techno track yeah. and he said it just went mad people loved it because it was they were seeing how it was happening. It was kind of sort of slightly behind the scenes yeah. thing, which I think people like to see now that yeah, you know, yeah. you're how you go about doing it. Because they've you know had all the here's, here's some snazzy, expensive hype Williams video. And now they're like, I want to see how it's done. Yeah, and that's quite good. I mean, it's, I think that's it. It's try and be unique and be honest with yourselves about it. If it's not unique, maybe think about a way of making it different or better. You know, that's it because it's just people that's how it happened for me really it's just doing something that huh, say no one else maybe one other person <laughs> in the same town <laughs> in the same town was doing but generally speaking obviously I consider that I would do it in a different way and he would say he does it in a different way to me yeah so be that be that act that if someone wants to book you if you can't do it or don't want to do it they can't book someone else yeah yeah because they'll want you to do it because you're the only person that does that particular thing sure I mean it's easier said than done obviously and I completely lucked into it but um, yeah that just seems to be the best way of doing it because you're not you know it's not going to be easy for you to get a record deal especially with a you know a major label I don't know if they it seems you know at the moment the kind of big pop stars that are around now have been around for the last 15 years really mm. you know where there aren't really any new I mean there are new people coming through but mega stars it's still you certainly like Beyonce, see that from Jay-Z. festival lineups yeah it's yeah like absolutely where, yeah, where are no... the bands coming up that are going to be hitting those spots in a few yeah, years time they're going to headline them yeah they're... yeah exactly where are they and I think bands obviously don't get a chance to grow often you'll find like in the same way that with podcasts they usually hit their stride after about six podcasts with with an, a band often sometimes it'll be the case the first album's the classic and that's it but sometimes it'll take them four or five albums to suddenly go oh here we go we've hit our stride yeah but I don't think bands generally speaking are going to get a chance to do that now you know you could have a band that's 
you know, his fourth album would have been the classic, but they're not going to get the chance to do that if they're on a major label now. They'll have to make millions on the first album, or that's it, and they're finished. Yeah. So do you think that kind of it's almost going full circle, going back to your kind of DIY roots, that now really given all the technology and what we've learned that it's kind of going back that way that you're maybe almost better off sort of learning how sort of some things work and doing it yourself and bypassing bypassing all of that yeah definitely I've, that's what I've learned and why I've you know I've often had offers of management and all that sort of thing and I don't I've sort of eschewed it really I, I don't I think it's better because you can just you can do it. You can make it your own little. It depends what you want from it. I'd never particularly wanted to be famous or anything like that. I just wanted to make a bit of a living, and maybe it's just my utter lack of ambition that has worked out for me somehow. Just the fact that yeah, I didn't think I wanted to be a huge star. That's a real problem that people want to be famous. Yeah. And that you'll find that that will eat your soul away because you'll realise that you, you know you could be famous, but you've got nothing you love doing. Yeah. You'd be famous without a passion for anything, and that's just must be fairly grim. Because you know I'll always make music, even you know I'm just very very I've been very lucky to have been able to just be a musician for the last twenty odd years, yeah. which is not something that many people are able to do, especially at this level. Just, I seem to have just lucked out and things turning up at the right time and do you think it's that because I was talking to um, Mark Ray from Ryan Christian mm. in a previous podcast and he said everybody gets the same luck everybody gets the same opportunities but it's what you do with those opportunities that that kind of make it sound like somebody's more lucky than someone else because the person that's ready for that opportunity when it comes looks lucky but it isn't it's because they're ready for it and the person that isn't ready for it then doesn't take it and it looks like they haven't had the same amount of luck I guess so well maybe not luck it's just maybe it's just just plain old genius perhaps maybe that's it (laughs) but no I seem to have just managed to find something I mean this Mr B is the first thing I've done that's lasted any really period of time I think I've I've become bored with things relatively quickly but luckily because Mr B is is a culmination of all the things I've done before so there is there's you know there's rapping on there there's production on there there's playing the ukulele there's messing around with the English language there's the style and dandyism of it and I can you know these these are all all the bits that I like I'm just you know I hate to say lucky again but I'm very fortunate I'm happy that I'm able to play around with it whichever bit of that I fancy at the time so that's why I never get bored with it because I can take it off in various directions maybe I could do just a stand-up show with it or I could I say with things like the major I could just do a weird little electronic thing or you know there's many avenues it could take I could just do the writing end of stuff whether you know one will be more successful than the other yeah but it's you know Creatively, I have, I can, I've got, you know, I've got a very open road ahead, and I can just go take whichever way I fancy, which is very nice, which does the job. So, you know, and 
I think I was talking to you before about it, saying, in a way, the older Mr. B gets, the funnier it'll be, or the more interesting, perhaps, it'll be. Whereas usually, you know, if I was with, you know, in a pop band, the older you get, you're finished. Yeah. Whereas with Mr. B, it's this sort of odd thing that, you know, I tend to have a real mix of ages at, in in my audiences, you know, from really young kids to grandparents and to all things, all points in between. Yeah. So it's, it can go any way, which is, it's great that I'm able to do something that I'm still, after 11 years of doing it, still get that little feeling, you know, when I'm starting to do something you know, a new EP or something like that. I'm excited about it. But I'm still interested, which, you know, never really happened before. I'd sort of trot off in a different direction, but Mr. B's kind of held me there. Also because Mr. B is the one that's making me money, <laughs> making me my living at the moment. So therefore, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to shoot that cash cow. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to keep my head above water with it. I'm not suggesting I'm fabulously rich or anything like that. But it's, yeah, it's something that still excites me and still, I still feel that I have many different directions to take it in, which is a, a very nice feeling. Excellent. I think, I think I've let you talk, well, not let you talk, I've enjoyed you talking, but you probably need a drink or <laughs> I've something. I've probably babbled on for far too long. So thank you for coming in and doing this. A pleasure. Thank you very much. So there we are, part one and part two of Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer, and I do hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did doing it. So if you are enjoying this series of podcasts, as always, as everyone says, please like and subscribe. If you can leave me uh, a review, that would be great. Basically, the more people that hear this means the bigger guests I can get. So your small amount of time that it takes to do that is very much appreciated. So next time, we are going to be talking to Laura Vane, singer and songwriter, who's performed with people like Flevens and The Streets. And that's a really enjoyable conversation. So we will see you again next week on the Current State of Music podcast. For now, take care. Bye-bye.